Lord Jesus. That's been the whole purpose of this I Am series that we've been going through uh, in the book of John. I'm cheating a little bit today and going actually to Revelation chapter 1. Now don't leave because I'm doing, entering into Revelation. You've got to stick around. But we're, we're going to look at an I Am, actually three different I Ams in Revelation chapter 1 and at the end. But this, this getting to know Jesus is exactly why we've worked through this series over the last seven or eight weeks. And we've got these symbols here, right? Jesus is the good shepherd. I'm going to use this as a pointer. Remember, he, before Abraham, he was. He's outside of time. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the true vine. He's the bread of life. He's the gate. He's the light. He's the resurrection and the life. This, see, we've got these images that have helped us remember, and we're coming to another one today, Alpha and Omega, and, and it's hard because he actually does three in this section in Revelation, but it's kind of the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and I've got these, these bookends here. That's, that's kind of the symbol for, for what we're doing today, even though they don't do a full picture. That's what, what we're looking at. So, um, like I say, we're sneaking on to this different book written by John. Consider this a teaser for the Revelation series. We are going to come back to Revelation after Lent and Resurrection Sunday. We're going to come back into Revelation for about eight weeks, and I'm going to explain everything you've ever really wanted to know. <laughs> Got it all figured. I've been to the Holy Land. I've gone to the mountaintop. <laughs> I fully understand Revelation. Um, anyway, Revelation chapter 1, John... Same John that's written the Gospel, John, is on, in, in exile on the island of Patmos. It, it's, it's a time of persecution of the church, and he's been, he was one of the leaders. He was exiled to this island by himself. Um, and, and he has this vision, this revelation. That's what the whole book is, this apocalyptic vision that he has while he's there. Excuse me, I picked up a cold. It's not the coronavirus, I promise. <clears throat> but I did pick up a cold on the flight home. I want to I set the stage today kind of for the, the whole book of Revelation. Um, but let's just read the first chapter, first 20 verses, and then we'll, we'll jump to a couple other spots and work through this last in our I Am series. Revelation 1, 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, that's me. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what's written in it, that's you, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
And on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. (coughs) In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We'll stop there. Now, the text here... um, starts with the same premise of our whole I Am series, right? We've been talking about looking at Jesus. Who is he? What is he? How, how do we understand who he is? And, and, and you've got to get this whole book that's the last book of the Bible is the revelation of Jesus. It's, 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 it's not... Some people call the book Revelations. You ever said that? Oh, the book of Revelations. It's not what the book says. The book says this is the revelation singular of Jesus. Some people tell you the book is going to fill up your last day's calendar. You can plan everything. I, I, I think it has insight into that, but that's not what it's for. The book is not to tell you the, the future that's coming. The book says right at the very beginning that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. You've, you've heard apocalypse, right? Apocalyptic literature. The Greek word apocalypsis literally means unveiling. Remember the let's make a deal or whatever. I'll have what's behind door number three. And then the door opens and there's something there. That's, that's apocalypsis. And what's happening in this book, John says, is this is the revealing of who Jesus is. And it's a, it's a big question for the church at that time. John's on an island in exile. And the church is suffering. And the question is, who is Jesus when the world looks like this? They, they were calling him the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And <coughs> the emperor in Rome was killing Christians. People were suffering and dying. And the church was being quashed everywhere it looked. And, and the question is, who is Jesus in the middle of this? Who is he when the world looks like this? He says, I am this. Well, who? Who are you? Before we focus on the I am's that he says here and two other places in Revelation, I want you to realize what the book is about and what it says about Jesus right here, even in the first chapter. Three things it says first is that Jesus is present. The whole setting of this chapter is John hearing from Jesus, who is with him on that island in exile. It says he turns in verse 12 to see the voice that was speaking to him, and he saw one like the Son of Man. Now that's a phrase from Daniel chapter 7. It's actually the phrase that Jesus used to describe himself in his ministry more than any other phrase. In Daniel 7, it's a vision of a human that's lifted up on clouds and seated on the throne of God and worshiped. And it's this image of Jesus, man, and God in the same person. 
And he says, I turn around and I see this guy who looks like the son of man. And, and it's powerful. He's got this robe to his feet. He's got this golden sash, white hair. His eyes were like fire, feet like bronze, a sound like rushing waters. He radiated, it's like the brilliance of the sun to look at him. And the point is that, that when the church feels most vulnerable, when they feel afraid, when the leaders are exiled and in trouble, Jesus is right there. And not only is he there, Jesus is speaking to the church. He has a message. He's standing in this, the, the, the middle of these lampstands which symbolize the churches. And he says in verse 11, write this down and send it to these guys because I've got something to say. I've not left them. They're not abandoned. He's here. And he has something to tell them. Now, this, that will be the focus of what we do as we work through Revelation after Resurrection Sunday. But Jesus is present. He's, he has a message for the churches. And Jesus is in charge. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I love that song. We sang, Alm- you know, Almighty in that song. The, the Greek word there is, it's just a powerful, I like, I, I don't know. Maybe you won't like it, but I love it. Panto crater. I, I, I imagine myself going to one of those, one of the, the big monster truck rallies. And there's the 14-foot high truck, and it says Panto crater right on the side of it, right? It means the most powerful one, the almighty. And that's why he says, I am the, the, the almighty. It's used 10 times in the New Testament. It's used nine times in the book of Revelation. God over and over is saying, I'm the powerful one. When the angels sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's that word, pantocrator. Love that. And, and that image you see with the robe and the hair and the eyes of fire and the sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth and his face shining like the sun, he's with them, he's speaking to them, and he's the one that rules over it all. That's the message that he wants to tell the church. And you see it reflected in the I am statements. In verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And then if you look at, down at verse 17, he has some others. I'm going to focus in on one of them. He says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. If you flip over to Revelation 21.6 at the end of the book. one six, he says. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And then if you go over to chapter 22, 13, he adds a third one in there. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now you see those three statements. They sound kind of just like twists, like, like it's almost like a poetic rendering. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. But, but they have very deep, they, they are related, but they have deeply different nuances and meanings, and so what I want to look at as we look at this, these three I am statements is three ways that the I am is. Okay, I tried to play with the verb there. Three ways that the I am is. He says I am three times, almost sounds like the same, but the reality is different in all those. It's, it's these bookends, but there's more to it than just bookends. The first is, is alpha and omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. If you want to call it A to Z, that would be fine. And, and in that, he's saying, I am the total package. If you look at the Greek alphabet, you got that slide, read. This is the whole Greek alphabet. Alpha at the top, omega at the end, 
And so what he's saying is, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Just pull those two up now. The beginning, the first letter of the alphabet, we, we say that all the time. He knows everything from A to Z, or he thinks he knows everything from A to Z. Aren't you proud of my Canadianness and not saying Z? I'm really <laughs> proud of myself here. And the rabbinic writings actually have several places where they say Alpha and Omega. They, they actually would say things like, Adam sinned in every possible way from Alpha to Omega, but Abraham was righteous in every possible way from Alpha to Omega. It was a common statement, just like it is for us. And it, it gives this idea of fullness and completeness and that nothing is missing. It sounds the same as the first and the last, right? Not quite. Alpha and Omega tend to focus on what's contained between them, the fullness, right? They're the, they're, they're the bookends. They're, this is the, the, the first letter and the last letter, and it holds everything that's in between. But when he says, I'm the first and the last, those are different Greek words, protos and eschatos, which literally first and last means the starter and the finisher, right? I'm the total package in that I'm A to Z, but I'm also the first and the last. I'm the one who begins things, and I'm the one who ends them. He's the one who started everything, the originator, the creator. John already told us in the first chapter, the first week, we, we looked at John chapter 1. <coughs> and in verse 3, talking about Jesus, it says, Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. He's the starter. He's the one who began this whole process. But he's also the finisher. He's the one who wraps things up. Alpha and Omega is focused on the content What's between? I've got it all. But starter and finisher is, ta- is, is focused on the action, what he can actually do, which is great to know in the dark times, right? It's, it's one thing to know he's, he's the total package. It's another thing to say he's the guy that started this and he's the guy that will finish it. He's the one that will say enough is enough. I told you several months ago about my incident on the bus where Sammy Cope was the bully. Remember, he used to hit me in the head with the class ring. You remember that story? And, and one time I whacked him on the head with my spelling book and then just cowered in fear. And the high school football star named Mark Smith stood up and just, boom, punched the bully, broke his collarbone. Mark Smith, the high school football star, was the finisher in that story, right? Right? And, and it's good to know when times are dark, when John is exiled in Patmos, when your life feels like it's falling apart, it's good to know that God's the total package, but it's also good to know that the one who started it is the one who will finish it. I had a good example of that yesterday in my basketball game. <laughs> um, you'll be happy to know that we're one game away from provincials this year. Way to go, Hope Secondary. And we played Agassiz, our bitter rivals. And we had to beat them to get to this next game. And we were ahead by 12 with six minutes left. And, and they had only scored 25 points the whole game. What are the odds that they're going to beat us? And then for the next four and a half minutes, they score nine points while we score none. And I was like, Lord, we started it, but you've got to finish it. <laughs> I was wanting a finisher, right? Just hold on till the end. Now, we did win. We, we rallied and... Didn't, we tried to give them the game. We really tried to help them. We were kind and compassionate and tried to give them the victory, but we didn't. But that, it's that sense of when you're in the middle of something and you just want to know that there's somebody that will end it. And you think about John saying, okay, he's, he's everything, but he's also the one who made it, and he's the one that's going to bring it to its conclusion. 
But the third, and I think the biggest of all, is when he says he's the beginning and the end. Really, the words I'm choosing there are the prototype and the purpose. It's not beginning like beginning of time and end of time. It's beginning, the, the, the word there actually is arche in the Greek. Now, I'm, I'm using prototype. The true translation of that Greek word would be the archetype. And I had to ask people this week, what's the difference between an archetype and a prototype? Does anybody know the answer to that? The sense is that prototypes, it's like the first time you build this electric car, you have a prototype. And here it is, and it's going to be modified, but this is kind of the example we're going to draw from. But the archetype is like the perfect example that everybody aspires to, like the archetype of the mother, right? The, the archetypal mother is the perfect mother. That, and so what I put prototype there, the reality is when he says he's the beginning, what he's saying is that he, he's, he's the archetype of everything. Now, let me get my notes to where I was. And, and the, the, the point in that is he is the example of what humanity truly was meant to be. He's the archetype of what a human being should look like, Jesus. He's the one. He's the example. He's what we aspire to be like. And the end is the word, the Greek word is telos, which means it's purpose, it's goal. What, it, what's, what, what it's all, some, the reason it's all happening is that. So not only is Jesus the example of what human beings look like, not only is he the perfect example of what we're supposed to be, but he's the reason that we exist. And it's, it's, that's a big concept here. It's, it, he's more than just everything that you need. He's more than just the one who starts and finishes. He's more than just the total package. He's the example of who we are to be, and he's also the reason everything exists. I'm getting, that's theoretical. I realize that's not a very practical thing. But you've got to understand what he's saying here is Jesus is not some spiritual tack-on element like a, a godly Dr. Phil that's going to help you build a good life. He's not a, a method to be happy. He is the purpose of everything's existence. He's the central figure of history, of the cosmos, of reality. Paul was driving at this, if you read Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and I'll read it to you. you you're going to hear Paul gets that, A to Z, first and last, beginning and the end. Just listen to this text. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, I realize I'm leaving you in this kind of ethereal God's out there. He's, he's, he's the archetype and he's the tell he's the goal, he's the, the purpose for everything. This is who Jesus is. But what, what I want you to see is this passage in Revelation drives us to answer the most important question that anyone will ever answer. Who do you say that I am? That's the question. The I am series, the, the I am statements all through the book of John and Revelation, they're all pointing us back 
to that situation with Jesus, asking his disciples back in Matthew 16, what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Because that's the question we've got to wrestle with. I mean, he's told us who he is. We've seen it over the past two months. He's the light. He's the door. He's the shepherd. He's the resurrection, the life. He's the way, the truth, the life. He's the beginning, the end, the first, last. But the question is not, who do we say he is? The question is, who do we actually believe that he is? And I want to wrap up today by looking at this question and, and challenging you to think it through for yourself. And the first thing I want you to realize is this is the perfect question in the darkness. This is the question that you need to wrestle with in the darkness. In verse 8 of chapter 1 of Revelation, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And then verse 9, look what he says. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You see what he's saying there? John's writing to the church and saying, I'm with you guys. I'm your brother in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that we have to go through. And I'm here in exile on this island. And and, and it made me think, you know, where did Jesus pose this question to his disciples? Where was that question asked? And if, if you look in Matthew 16, verse 13, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And then eventually he says, who do you say that I am in Caesarea Philippi? Now, then the question is, what is that place like? I wish I knew somebody that had been to Caesarea Philippi. (laughs) What is that place like? Well, it just so happens. Two weeks ago today, Hansel and I were standing in Caesarea Philippi, which was really cool for me. And there's, there's the picture. This is the ruins some of the people in our group, if you see in the back, there's a, little, there's a cave back there that the spring flows out. Um, and and in the, near the cave was a temple to Caesar Augustus where they performed Roman rituals to honor Caesar. And right where the, this guy is standing in the, and on, closer is a temple to the god Pan. Now Pan is the guy who has the goat, goat half and two goat's horns. And, and One thing about Pan was there was a lot of revelry and drunkenness and carousing, but there was also a huge amount of fear. The god Pan is where we get the term panic because people were afraid. And and right there in the foreground was this temple where some people would have been so afraid that what they actually did was bring their child and sacrifice their child to the god Pan so that Pan would show favor on them. And Jesus brings his disciples to this dark place. Very dark place. And that's where he sits down and he says, Hey guys, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And the the teacher that we had with us on the trip taught this, this passage there. And I realized that's exactly where we need to ask that question. In the dark places. That's where the question really matters. That's where it stops being a theological idea and a symbol on a table beside a preacher, and it becomes real. It's not a trivia answer. I mean, I'm glad that some of you, thanks to these visuals, maybe can remember all of these things that Jesus said, I am. But it's not, it's not something for jeopardy when you answer that question. It's in the dark places that we're confronted with who do we really believe Jesus is. When my life is falling apart... Who do you say that I am? Do you trust that I am 
who I say I am? Do we really believe that he is the alpha and omega, the starter, the finisher, the archetype and the purpose? It's it's in the dark places where we're forced to come face to face with this question and really make it a gut question instead of a head question. As we begin to do that, we realize that the question then becomes the journey because it's not an easy, immediate answer. Verse 17 of Revelation, when John has this vision of it, it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though I, like dead. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, and boom, there he is, and poof, right? And I love what it, it says, um, he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. You see, at this point, it becomes more than a question. It becomes this journey where we start to live in a relationship with God and figure out if we really believe what he says. That's why Jesus, after he asked them, who do you say that I am? He went on in Matthew 16 to say, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. It's not a question that you answer and tick, you're in the box, it's done. It's the beginning of a journey. And all along that journey, you're going to confront those dark, dark places where you're questioning and you're wondering and you don't know if you believe anymore. And Jesus comes back and says, who do you say that I am? And we have to answer that question again. When you're starving spiritually or emotionally, is he really the bread of life? When you're facing death or grief, is he really the resurrection and the life? You know, Jake did a great job a couple, three weeks ago talking about that idea of knowing by description where you know something about or knowing by acquaintance where you know it because you've experienced it. It's in the dark places that we move from knowing that Jesus is the bread of life to to eating Jesus as the bread of life. When it seems like there's no way out in your situation, do you really believe that Jesus is the gate? When you feel empty, is he the true vine that's going to nourish you? When you can't see what's up ahead, you have no idea what's going to happen down the road, is he truly the light of the world? And when you're terrified of what's coming, is Jesus, what's coming, is Jesus really the good shepherd? Is he leading me to a place that's good? See, that's what's... Those are real points in the journey. That's what's happening here in Revelation. The church is suffering and struggling. And Jesus has made all these promises. And they're not seeing any of them come to fruition. And he stands up and he says, I am the Alpha and Omega. I'm the starter. I'm the finisher. And I'm the the, the archetype. And I'm the reason it all exists. The church is on the journey at a place of darkness and fear. And then they're called, as they, as they wrestle with the question, to start receiving the answer by faith. He says, do not be afraid. He doesn't say, I'm going to solve all your problems, John. He doesn't teleport him back to a nice warm house in Jerusalem with all, the, all his favorite people. He says, do not be afraid. I am who I said I am. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. I'm the one in charge. See, a life of following Jesus is not, it's not a pop quiz in theology class where you get all the I am right answers. A life of following Jesus is where you actually go into those dark places and are forced to say, he said it, am I actually going to trust? Am I actually going to trust in this dark place that he is who he says he is? 
question gets real in the dark and scary and the difficult places. And it becomes about knowing Jesus personally, not knowing about him, not knowing what he said, but knowing him as the actual bread of life, as the actual alpha and omega, the starter and the finisher. That's why Paul prays in Ephesians 1, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So that you may know him not by description, but by acquaintance. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. You know, we can go through this series and you can remember all these things on the table. And that'd be great. I hope you're talking about them with your kids. right? You do want to get it in your head because when when the darkness hits, that's when you actually have to move it from head to heart. You have to trust that he's the good shepherd when where he's leading you does not look good. When the darkness comes, when it looks like the world is falling apart, when John is in exile and the whole church is suffering, the question comes, who do you say that I am? And life becomes a journey of answering that question from all the different angles. It's a master class in living in a relationship with Jesus. It's not a decision that you make one time. It's a relationship that you walk into. See, this becomes the lens by which you see all of your life. You, you, you walk into that darkness and you're, you're honest. I mean, that, please be honest about... I, I have a good friend who a lot of you know whose wife was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and he's, it's, it's a shock. And in the middle of that moment, the question is, are you really the good shepherd? And sometimes I think we're afraid to ask that. I, I say that to God all the time. Really? God, is this, I I get you said it, but you're going to have to help me figure this out. You're going to have to give me the strength to trust that in the middle of this dark, broken world, that you are the good shepherd, that you're the light of the world, that you're the bread of life. I need to know that not in my head. I need to know that in my gut. When there's no way out, I need to know you're the door. When when I feel empty, I need to know you're the vine and I'm going to be able to pull from you. When when I can't see what's up ahead, I've got to know that you've got the light. You're going to take me where it's okay. See, these are the real points of the journey. These, These are the places where theological concepts become the very spiritual air that you breathe. (laughs) You can sit in a class and talk about all these things till the cows come home. But if in that middle of darkness you're not able to fall on your knees and say, God, I need you to be the bread of life for me right now. That's that's what we're talking about. That's that's what life leads us to. You know, we see the darkness. I'm rambling here, but I promise I'll reel it in. We see the darkness as something we've done wrong, as, as, as punishment. And very often the darkness is just there to drive us deeper to where we actually know who God is. And I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to downplay your darkness and your brokenness and your struggle. I'm not minimizing any of that, please, because I, I don't want you to have it. I don't want to have it either. But I know from my own life the hard times and the broken times and the place, times when I've cried out to God and said, what do you think you're doing are the times when God has shown up in a very real, tangible way and I got to know him instead of just know about him. I got to know him by acquaintance instead of knowing by description. I got to take theology and words on a paper and eat them and be nourished by them. And that, that's what the journey is. 
That's why the question is, who do you say that I am? It's fitting that we end here because we're, we're moving into Lent, which is a period of journeying and walking and reflecting on our own life. And God, how, how, show me if there are things in me that need to be let go. Guide me. Take me into this dark period and help me walk through so that when I come to that Resurrection Sunday morning and I'm saying he's live, it's not just a concept. It's not a tradition, but it's something that gives you hope for every single second of your life. Let's pray. God, we, we have confessed many things that you are. We've talked about you coming on the clouds. We've talked about kings and kingdoms bowing down. We've said to you today, we want to know you. And I, I know there's a lot of difficulty in this room. There's pain and people hurting and people with questions that there don't seem to be any answers to. This, and this is just a microcosm of the world. In, in the prayer, we talked about the pain and suffering and the war and the fighting and the ego-driven greed that is all over this place. And God, we just ask that in these moments of darkness, we can come face to face with the question of who we say you are and that we can trust you, not as a mental concept, not as something we said or something we learned in Sunday school, but something that really we lean on and hold on to as if it's the very breath of life. God, show us who you are in our situation today. Give us the, the faith, the grace, the trust, and, and the patience. John says, your, your brother, in the patient endurance, give us the patience to let you Reveal yourself to us in whatever way you want to so that we can actually know you in a deeper and deeper way. In Jesus' name, amen.